Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Dualmax. Dualmax is a long-standing Niagara-based general contracting company that has been providing construction services for both new construction and renovations in the institutional, commercial, and industrial sector for over 45 years. If you want to learn more, go to dualmax.ca. Now, on to the episode. Hey everybody, uh, welcome to the Real Talk Podcast. On today's show, uh, we have Samuel Say. Uh, he's a very special guest, uh, appreciate having him on. And uh, I guess I'll just throw it over to Samuel because he can uh, tell you about himself better than I can. So get a little introduction, who you are, where you're from, and then uh, we'll jump into the topics at hand. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm Samuel Say. Um, I was, until recently, I was uh, living, I suppose, in in, uh, in Brampton, right next to Toronto. And I'm now about to get married uh, to an American lady. So I'm, I'm in Ohio right now. Uh, but I was originally born in Ghana. Uh, Ghana is the, the best African country. Um, <laughs> no, bias, no bias there whatsoever. Uh, but yeah, and um, I was raised by a Christian mother. Um, I was raised in the church, but it wasn't until I was 19 years old that I, the gospel that I heard my whole life, I actually heard it um and uh, the god that i hated i now loved and the sins that i loved i now hated um that was uh, i'm 34 now so i was like 15 years ago and now i'm just um known for blogging at slowtowrite.com where i write about um cultural political social issues um hopefully through biblical um theology I've also done pro-life work as well too, so I'm known for that as well. Um, and I cause a little bit of trouble sometimes on social media, I suppose. So, <laughs> yeah, that uh, that might be where I came across you first on Twitter a couple of years back. But uh, no, that's always good. You're uh, you're usually raising some some good points and creating conversation. Um, so there's a couple of ways we can go on this one. I think uh, definitely interested to hear about your work uh, with CCBR and the pro-life uh, span of things. But actually, I'm just curious personally. Uh, I think I heard on some other podcasts that uh, you grew up in more of a prosperity gospel type church, and then you ended up uh, in a Dutch reform church, I heard you say. You want to give us more background on that? Because our audience is is primarily Dutch reform. So I'd be curious uh, just to, to find out that. Uh, Dutch reform people, I love you guys. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was raised in the prosperity gospel church. Uh, so that's actually where I heard the gospel. Now, let me explain that. You know, the prosperity gospel is heresy. It's a, it's a false teaching. Yet at that church, there, there were some individuals there who were genuine believers who ended up leaving the prosperity gospel movement with me as well. But they, you know, so yeah, I was raised in that environment um, and they, they preached the gospel. I believe the gospel. Now, although I raised, I was raised in the, in, again, by a Christian mother my whole life, I had never really read the, the, the Bible before, really. Uh, I remember actually, so I got saved at a young adults retreat. And I remember the night uh, when, I, when I went to that young adults retreat, these guys kept talking about Paul. Paul, I mean, who's this Paul guy everyone keeps talking about? And then I realized, well, he's the guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament. <laughs> I knew nothing. Um, although I would have called myself a Christian until uh, I really believed. So anyway, I mentioned that because then I started reading my Bible really for the first time and I was studying theology. And that's when I learned about a year after I became a Christian through groups like Way of the Master. Um, it's funny, actually, I, I started following Way of the Master with Kirk Cameron and, um, and um, uh, New Zealand, uh, forgetting his name, uh, Kirk Cameron's colleague, uh, forgive me for that. I'm forgetting his name, no, but all good. Uh, all good. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this, this is to him, or Todd Friel as well too, and they, they, I, I was, I was following them because I was trying to learn how to share the gospel with my friends, but through them, they helped me understand what the real gospel was. That it was not the prosperity gospel. Um, and then about it, so then I become I became reformed also through by reform. Some you know Dutch reform people might say, wait a minute, you're a reformed Baptist. That's not really reform. So I guess <laughs> I'll say Calvinist, right? Yeah, I became yeah. a Calvinist through 
Paul Washer, Way of the Master, um, John MacArthur. And then I realized that, okay, of course, I had to leave my Prosperity Gospel Church. But at the time, the word, I didn't really understand the differences between a Reformed Baptist and just a Dutch Reformed you know, church. So I Googled Reformed churches in Brampton. And the first thing that came up was um, a Dutch Reformed church. And uh, I, I walked in um, believing so when I walked in, so, you know, you guys will know this. If you you guys are, I think, Dutch Reformed, you said, or you yeah. just know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when you guys say that church starts at 10 a.m., what you really mean is it starts at 9.55 a.m., you know? <laughs> yes. And, yeah. And so when we say church starts at 10 a.m., it means somewhere around 10 a.m. Yeah. So <laughs> I showed up at 10.05, and, which meant I was, two, I was 10 minutes late. And I walked into a church that I thought was the back of the church. But when I opened the doors, <laughs> I'm 10 minutes late and the whole church is now facing <laughs> I accidentally walked into um, the middle of the service and the pastor um, is preaching to my left. And he stops what he's saying to look at me. And oh, by the way, from what I learned, I was the first black person to ever walk into this church. So <laughs> awkwardness all around. But anyway... Long story short, I loved my time there. I, I love Dutch Reformed people. I grew a lot there. Uh, I'm still friends with many of the people from those church. I only left because I'm a Reformed Baptist. And um, that's the only reason why. But other than that, I, um, I'm still, and, I, and then you mentioned before, I was working at CCBR, which is uh, filled with many Dutch Reformed people. So um, yeah, anyway, that was the connection. Okay. Um, that's how I left the prosperity gospel world into Dutch Reformed circles. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> that's, that's quite a story. I can imagine uh, walking into a, a Dutch church, uh, you know, being that um, yeah, even being even being f uh, not from the church, you're, you're already recognized. But then being as maybe the first black guy to ever walk in the church uh, would yeah. be quite something. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I don't know if you want to get into um, some Canadian politics. I know that, like now you're in the States. So um Actually, maybe you should give some uh, just background on on how you ended up to, uh, moving into the states. I know, like we've listened to a bunch of your stuff recently and understand your story a little bit. Maybe you can just briefly outline uh, why you're yeah. down in uh, Ohio instead of uh, joining us in the studio. Yeah, yeah. So I've been in uh, Ohio for just two weeks. Um, I essentially moved here two weeks ago, and. It's really difficult because physically, presently, I'm here, but my heart is still all the way in Canada. Um, I still have, I have a VPN that ties everything back to Canada because I don't want to accept that I'm actually in the States. Um, <laughs> but um, the reason why is because I'm getting married to an American uh, woman. Um, she's my fiance and we've been dating actually for five years. I don't recommend that. That was not the plan whatsoever. The reason why is it's a series of bureaucratic stuff with the government, struggling to get a visa, uh, a visa for me to move to the States. Um, and especially what happened over the last few months was, uh, well, actually after two years of us not seeing each other um, throughout the COVID restrictions, when I finally saw her, I proposed to her. But then when I had to move here, um, as every Canadian knows, you can't really leave the country unless you get the, you get the vaccine. So I ended up being forced to get the vaccine so that I could get married, uh, which is a real difficult thing for me to have to choose because I was struggling because I had very strong convictions. I have very strong convictions of not getting the vaccine, but at the end, if I didn't, if I didn't get the vaccine, I wouldn't be able to marry my fiance for another year and a half uh, because then I'd have to postpone my visa meeting and everything else. So. Anyway, so that's why I ended up moving from um, Toronto to Ohio. Wow, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's, I've listened to a lot of your story and read, read some of the things you've written on your, uh, on your website. And it uh, seems like a difficult uh, road to travel. So I'm glad you're you know, down there and you can be together now. Um, so maybe we'll get, we should get into some Canadian uh, politics because we were <clears> – <throat> actually, Lucas was just down in, in Ottawa on the weekend. We dropped a video um, just yesterday. Um, Lucas did a whole whack of interviews with a whole bunch of supporters, uh, protesters, like um, asking their stories, who they were, where they were from and stuff like that at the trucker convoy. So um, 
I mean, there's obviously tons of developments every day and I'm sure you're still following it because, you know, your heart's still a Canadian. So, um, yeah, we're talking. Yeah, yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah. So (laughs) just for the listeners, this comes out in like a week or so, Mm -hmm. maybe a week and a half. But February 15th, we're talking about this. Trudeau has just uh, enacted the Emergency Measures Act and um, it's looking like the situation is ramping up. The government is able to freeze corporate accounts and remove licenses and is really stepping up enforcement on the protest. Um, so can you give us your latest thoughts on uh, where you see this going and what you've thought about the uh, the trucker convoy so far? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, in some ways it's, it's surreal. Um, I'm not surprised in some ways because I, I really do believe, and we already see it, the convoy is extremely effective. Already, I think almost every, uh, I think even Quebec announced that they're also about to end their vaccine mandates too. And they've been the worst at this thing. Yep. So that's powerful. I think BC is the only, British Columbia is the only one that has not yet announced um, their an end to their vaccine mandates. Of course, what matters most is the federal um, mandates, uh, at least for many people. So I mentioned that because I really believe the convoy will be effective. It's already effective. I think it'll be even more effective. I think you will see Trudeau eventually ending all this. The problem is I knew that it would also get worse before it got better. Um, It seems to me, and some reports have indicated this, Trudeau sees this as a legitimate end to his time as the prime minister. Um, So many Canadians now are against him. Um, And many people are energized and galvanized to stand against him. That I think he knows that this is really the beginning of the end for him. So I had a feeling that he would then, by trying to maintain his his role as prime minister longer, that he will try to amp things up to end the protest as much as fast as he possibly can. Um, but I think by doing that, that's even him signaling, signaling the beginning of the end, because I don't think it'd be as effective as he thinks uh, it will be. My concern is um, by, of course, invoking the emergency, um, the Emergencies Act. I, I hope it doesn't happen. Um, I don't think the police or other people will be enforcing it the way you would want it, want them to, but this is in some ways declaring war on peaceful Canadians. And that could get pretty, it can get violent fast. Some of these guys, as you know, have left their homes because they don't have a job jobs to go back to. And they're prepared. They're not going until this ends. So to tell some of them to now leave just like that and drive all the way back to Vancouver or Calgary or wherever they're from, I don't see many of them saying yes to that easily. Many of them have said they're they're willing to be arrested. And when people are willing to be arrested for a righteous cause, it could it could upset the police or possibly the military if they get involved enough that it can get very violent. And I'm very concerned about that. Um, but of course, by invoking this act, Trudeau has become what I said on social media is he claims this is temporary, but uh, we know exactly what that's looked like over the last two years, <laughs> but he's also been becoming a temporary dictator and that's pretty scary. So anyway, those are my initial thoughts of what's transpired over the last couple of days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, do you, so you think like, yeah, uh, the way I see it basically is, is there's two options. He can back down and, and concede and remove the mandates or he will have to take the military in. Because they, as you say, they aren't moving. I was up there. I talked to over 30 different people. Um, and yeah, yeah it's, a, it's up on YouTube. People want to check it out. Like it's, there's a real grassroots support for it. Even though if you look at some of the polling, it seems uh, a good majority of Canadians would like people to go home and move on. But I think the longer this drags on, the more it's pinned on Trudeau. Mm-hmm. And the more, uh, well, especially now that he's enacted this uh yeah, extreme measure. It's it's on him and it's his crisis to uh, to solve. I thought Jordan Peterson um, on Twitter, I saw he had an interesting quote about this. He said, it's easier for Canadians to believe the trucker convoy is a dangerous rebellion than to admit their government is cowardly and corrupt. 
you've yeah. been following the political scene um, and the cultural scene here in Canada for quite a while. Um, yeah, are you are you optimistic for kind of a change in how people view our political system and kind of a renewal of involvement? And do you think uh, figures like Jordan Peterson are are helping that cause along, or do you think that the majority of the population is just complacent and uh, and we're seeing the decline of a nation? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's so much to say about that. Um, the one good thing about the convoy already is that they've changed public perception already. I think now about roughly, roughly give or take half of Canadians at want the end, an end to the vaccine mandates. Yep. Some of them, of course, many of them want them to go home, but that's but that's because they don't, you know, Canadians don't want, you know, we don't want, we don't like controversy. Mm-hmm. We don't like division. Uh, which I will get to in a second. Um, but I think they've changed so much already um, that even if they were to end now, they've already been extremely effective. But they also know that so many Canadians are depending on them. I, I know, and I'm sure you heard these stories too in, um, when you were interviewing them. I know people who over the weekend, their wives and children drove all the way from their, where they, you know, their home to go visit their husbands or fathers to say, to give them food, provide for them, and then go back saying, we want you to stay. So these husbands are not just doing it for themselves or doing it for their families and they're doing it for their country. So you, also, you have their family supporting them, which is extremely powerful. You have churches praying for them. Their pastors are praying for them. Their church members are praying for them. That's powerful. You have um, politicians who are backing them now, right? You have even liberal politicians saying, this is enough. Right, you have Jordan Peterson, um, who has played a major role in bringing um, attention to this around the world, right? Because of his influence, you have the whole world who are now being influenced by these truckers. It's a very motivating thing to know that the whole world is essentially hoping that by your courage, you that you you can end this thing, and then it gives them hope. You see that you see in America, right? When did when did Canadians ever influence Americans for liberty? <laughs> right? yeah, you know? but you're seeing that you see that around the world and i think in terms of do i see any hope that this will change how many canadians will look at our political system or just our politics i hope so i really hope so um the problem that we have is this is and many canadians many americans didn't didn't know this but this is the first real mass protest we've had in our history. We've not had any really anything like this before. And that in of itself shows part of the problem. Of course we've had some, we've had protests before, but to this degree, nationwide protests, it's as far as I know, unheard of. And I think that will already be uh, forcing Canadians to think through what they really want out of their prime minister out of their government. Um, and what does it really mean to be free? What, is it, what does freedom really mean? When Trudeau, when in our nation, Trudeau has the power to just by having this, you know, by invoking the Emergency Act, really becoming a dictator. How in the world do we allow that? Where we now, it's now legal for him to erase our, our civil liberties. We need to start thinking about what have we been ignoring all this time? It's great that we're now caring about the vaccine mandates, but we've been ignoring so many other things over the last number of decades that has brought us to this point. And I'm hoping that Canadians will think it through. Am I confident? I don't know. But if you told me a month ago, two months ago, that the trucker convoy would lead to this kind of uh, change, I would have told you never. But here we are now, right? So that gives me hope. Yeah. 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 It's kind of, it's really, it's really galvanized people in a way that I, yeah. I mean, as a Canadian, I really couldn't have imagined that Canadians can do that. Cause as you said, we're like, we're not really, I don't know if we're complacent. We're, we're just, uh, we're adverse to, you know, controversy. We're not. Yeah. Even you even see it, how peaceful these protests have been. And you can only imagine if they were in other countries in, on this scale and this mass with the energy that is in in these things, uh, how that doesn't get uh, to be a violent thing. Um, yeah, I, I will, um, it, may, it may be harsh to say, um, but 
I have a friend who says this and I always chuckle whenever he says this because it's kind of true. He says that uh, we Canadians love oppression. <laughs> and yeah, um, what he means by that is we identify ourselves as really being anti-American. We say that no, unlike our rebellious Southern um, cousins, we stayed loyal um, to the, you know to Britain. Now, I'm not saying I'm, I'm against um, our loyalty or relationship with the, with the monarchy. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that even in our history and our culture, we are identified as being anti-American, at least anti their um, you know anti-freedom, really, in some sense, mm-hmm. right? So we've always preferred. Um, for example, I mean, this is controversial too, but like even our healthcare system, we boast about it, but there's some many problems with our healthcare system, but we boast about it. We say, well, hey, at least we're not the Americans where, um, you know, uh, they don't have, you know, free healthcare. So I think that's part of the problem that we are a very compliant group. We're not the rebellious. We're not like the Americans. We're very much that we want to be loyal to the government, no matter what they do, especially because of our history with progressivism. And we are a very progressive nation, one of the most progressive nations in the Western world. And we very much um, boast about that. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. no, I, I, I totally understand. Like it, it's kind of a stereotypical Canadian thing just to, you know, we roll over, we say we're sorry, et cetera. But we've also been kind of taken advantage of over the last like long time, even our healthcare system, like you said, like we don't even question it. Like we were never taught as as kids, as students to question that. Um, at all. It was just like, we have the greatest healthcare system and that's that. But what does it say to you when, when a leader like Trudeau is so divisive in his, in his, uh, like in his words, like he's, he's painting people and he's calling people racists and terrorists. Yeah. Terrorists. And he's calling this an insurrection and things like that. Like, what is that really doing to our, our society? And then also how can we as a church combat that? Because even in our church, it's hard to get everyone on the same page with this kind of thing. Um, yeah. You know, maybe it's because of our culture, but yeah. yeah. Uh, I think what it says about Trudeau um, and our nation when Trudeau is painting Canadians as being, or at least the protesters as being uh, racist or terrorists and things like that is he knows that for a long time, Canadians would have simply taking that as truth and as facts, um, because we trust our governments no matter what. I mean, despite all the accusations of corruption that he has, many Canadians still trust Trudeau. Um, you know, and I think he believes in that he can say these things and then as usual, we would believe him. But of course they played that game for so long that not crying wolf. Now we don't believe, we don't believe them when it comes to this because also, this is a very, as you guys said, a very grassroots movement. We all know, we all know people who have been, um, been um, to Ottawa, and we know they're not racist. So it makes it very difficult for them to take, for, for us to believe what Trudeau is saying. Um, but this is also because, I don't know if we'll address this, is because critical race theory is very prominent um, within the government. Uh, Canada probably is the most, um, it's probably the, 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 the the most pro-critical race theory, um, how do I say this? The, the federal, the, the, the Trudeau government, the federal government is the most pro-critical race theory government in the world. Um, it's not even close. That might shock many people, but I've been following um, the anti-racist strategy by the liberal government, and it is absolutely advocating for critical race theory. So when he says that Essentially, as CDC has also been saying too, that the call for freedom against the vaccine mandates is essentially racist. And it's because they believe that freedom or independence is white supremacist uh, by nature. And that's a critical race theory point of view. So that's one of the reasons why he's saying all this. But ultimately, the main reason is he just wants to paint people who don't agree with him as being un-Canadian, as he tends to say being un-Canadian, and if that's the case, then it will not gain as much support, which will then help him in furthering his political agenda. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, he's, yeah he's, it's, it's a classic case of fomenting division to uh, to advance his own political cause. Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, that's great. We can just transition right into to CRT. Let's just back up for a minute, I guess. 
just define critical race theory for our listeners, for our viewers, and uh, and then maybe give a couple examples of where it's uh, infiltrated our society. Yeah. Um, so critical race theory is very complex intentionally. Um, many many people call it Marxist, and some critical race theorists would deny that, but it's but it really is a version of Marxism, a newer version of Marxism. So basically, um, I'll explain Marxism first in a very uh, brief way. Marxism basically is the idea that there are that that there is an essential conflict between groups in society, and this and and these groups are the proletariat, or you would say the privileged class, uh, rich people, versus the sorry, I meant the bourgeoisie, which is the rich rich privileged class versus the proletariat being the poor um, lower class, right? That's the idea. Critical race theory, now, actually there's a book called From Class to Race. And uh, it's, it's by one of the founders of critical race theory, Charles, Charles W. Mills. What he says is, uh, Marx was right that there is a conflict in society, a conflict from, that has been plaguing society from the very beginning. Right? And it's still ongoing today until there's a revolution. But what this author says is Marx was right about there being a conflict. What he was wrong about is what the conflict was really about. So Marx says it was an economic or class struggle. Critical race theory says it's a race struggle. It's really between white people and black, and black people or white people versus non-white people. That is really what critical race theory is about. And then it also says in the very postmodern uh, thinking that Western society, especially Canada, is built for white people. Um, uh, sorry, it's built by white people for white people. So even the values that we think are impartial, things like freedom, right? Things like uh, impartiality, things like our legal system, especially our legal system, our schools, um, our government, the way our culture, our churches, all the things that we think are impartial, they're designed by white people for white people as a way to marginalize uh, and oppress uh, non-white people, right? So that's what critical race theory is in, the, in hopefully in a very generally brief way, um, which in, in, the implication then is white people, unless they are fighting against the systems and the culture, they are racist unless they are fighting by trying to destroy um, their current system to create a revolution, really critical race theory being implemented. They are not anti-racist then, right? If you want, if you want to abolish the system, then you are anti-racist. If you're not, you are a racist by nature. So um, in terms of examples, well, for, you know, yeah. So I don't know if you guys know about this, but last year around Black History Month, I was invited to a, a school in Alberta um, to speak about racism, but I guess they did not Google me. Um, they did not, you know, read any of my articles. So they thought, I guess I was going to be teaching critical race theory. They didn't know that I was going to be actually speaking against critical race theory. Oops. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a big group indeed. So I actually was fairly tame. Um, I didn't want to shock them. I simply, the title of the speech was, uh, what is racism? And I was defining racism um, biblically as partiality, right? Racism is simply partiality against someone because of their skin color, or to use a more broad term, racism is bias against anyone because of their skin color. Therefore, you could be racist against black people, white people, Asian people, brown people, Indigenous people, it doesn't matter. Then I said, and this is a key part that became controversial. If partiality, if racism means partiality, then systemic racism then means systemic partiality. Meaning if someone claims Canada is, is systemically racist, they need to identify a policy or a law from the government that shows partiality or a bias against black people not by outcomes, not by disparities, but by clear favoritism against uh, black people. Mm. 
I asked people, can you find a single law or, or, or policy in Canada? They could not find a single one. And I thought that was it. I, I leave. And then a few weeks later, the school writes a public letter denouncing me for denigrating students, for denying racism, for um, sharing racist views, and um, you know, basically essentially calling me a racist. Now, the one thing they didn't do was mention my name because not everyone knew who they were talking about. People from the, from the talk of the school knew they were referring to me. But I guess if they mentioned my name, someone would Google me and they would realize that, wait a minute, this guy's black. <laughs> you know, it probably doesn't jive with what they're saying. So um, that's one example where by me simply defining racism through biblical theology, um, they deem that I'm racist because I am, I am protecting the white supremacist definition in their mind of racism. Um, another example, for example, is uh, I think in the Durham region here in Ontario, you had you had um, uh, the school the school the school board giving white sorry giving um, non-white teachers more more uh, weights in their votes. Right, so yep. that because they believe that non-white people are oppressed and are marginalized in society and in the school board, they therefore need to compensate for that by giving them, um, you know, by making their votes count more than the white person, which is of course racism, right? But that's an example of critical race theory. There's many more. For example, even the federal government has given, um, I'm forgetting what they call their the this this project, but there's a project from the from, from the federal government that gives black businesses um, more, uh, more funding yeah. um, because they're black. And the idea is because again, they live in a racist society, they have more barriers, therefore they need more help from the government. Yeah, yeah it's, it's everywhere, man. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, I even see Trudeau's said like, didn't he make half his cabinet black people? Well, there was like well, hardly enough to even make it his cabinet. Half women, but then yeah. Oh, they, half women, that's right. But they have a certain amount of uh of quota yeah, not sure black people, right? Not. <laughs> but yeah, it's so many MPs. It's everywhere in society. And um yeah, I guess I guess the question a lot of people would have about it, um, because the tricky part about critical race theory is that perhaps there are grains of truth to some of the claims as far as um there has been obviously discrimination in the past. There are disparities today, and uh people um yeah, find themselves in different situations. And often you can categorize that generally speaking, like certain demographic groups based on race are in de uh, better or worse positions uh, as far as, as financially speaking goes. Um, so I guess what I would ask is, is this just a tool that people can use to look at the world and sort through disparities and figure out why disparities exist? Or is there more of a theological, is there more of a worldview at play behind uh, critical critical race theory, critical theory, perhaps in general? Yeah, I, um, critical race theory's claim is just a tool or what, what they call an analytic tool. But I think it's, they're not being, well, I know they're not being honest, but I also don't mind them calling it that way as well too, because it is clearly a worldview, right? They see, Western society or Canada or white people as a certain way, they are they have a definition for what is what is injustice or what is just. They're not simply analyzing things. They are claiming good and evil, righteous and evil. They're making they have a theological view as to what is right and wrong, what should be punished and what shouldn't be. Um, but then through that worldview, they analyze the world. Um, that is true for every worldview. Every worldview is analytical by nature. So. They analyze things, but fundamentally, it is a theology. They have their own. They have their own. Uh, what I call their own uh, past and future. In that, we say that through Adam, all humanity were made. Uh, uh, all humanity became became sinners. We know that there is no distinctions between Jew or Greek or black or white. We are we are all fallen people. The problem is critical race theories would essentially say white people since they have more power in their mind are more evil or more sinful than 
um, than non-white people, which is why they say oftentimes only white people can be racist because white people have power when other people don't. So they have a different um, theological understanding of sin. Um, and really they also have their own future in the sense that they have their own heaven, which is really a, a socialist or communist utopia. They really believe by ending, so the key word in critical race theory is really equity. They really believe that we can, um, we can have equity, which basically means equality of outcome, that you can have all non-white people and all white people having an equal outcome, which according to you know, the most prominent critical race theory scholar today, Ibrahim Kendi, he says the only way, and, and, and he's kind of right about this, the only way to produce equity is to discriminate. He actually says this very openly, right? He says that um, past, the remedy for past discrimination is present or future discrimination, right? But that's also because in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which I call How to Be a Racist, because the book <laughs> is all about racism. Um, uh, he says that, that racial discrimination is only wrong if it, if it leads to inequity, but it's good if it leads to equity, meaning it's okay to be racist against white people. It's okay to discriminate against a white person if it will lead to equity, uh, again, equality of outcome between all people. So it's okay to bring white people down so that you can make them equal with all groups. The problem is it never works out that way, of course. There are always going to be people who have more power than others. But the issue is just like, just like communists, you know, throughout, well now and in the past, critical race theorists, if they get what they want, will be the ones on top and everybody else, including black people will be at the bottom. I know this because black lives matter, right? Um, in Toronto as well and in Canada, they're millionaires, they're making a lot of money and not a dime is going to the black people that they claim to care about. Um, and again, it's very much filled with their own political and an ambitious uh, agenda for for power and for and for wealth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's very political, and it's not even um, it, they they purport to yeah to be anti-racist, but actually you see this all the time, and I'm sure you've experienced this yourself, where you'll find uh, that you will be put into a category of politically black and then politically non-black. Because uh, if you're a black person like yourself who doesn't endorse critical race theory and all the mm. uh, the tenets of that religion, then you find yourself on the outside and um, siding with uh, with the people with the power structure, so to speak, and yeah, internalizing makes, your white supremacy. Which makes a guy in power like Justin Trudeau, who now is a dictator, um, less of a racist than than you, <laughs> which is just something so bizarre to even yeah. I was yeah. going to say, you know, the, the audacity of Trudeau to call people like me a racist or a white supremacist when he's the one that wore blackface, right? You know, it's, it's just, that's just how ridiculous all this is. Now, look, to be very honest with you, I controversially somewhat defended Trudeau uh, when that happened. I wanted to be gracious to him. He's not gracious, but I wanted to be. Because here's the thing. I know this is a bit off topic, but Go ahead. wearing blackface is not automatically racist. It's not. Racism is not based on actions. It's based on intent. It is. Partiality is something that's based on intent. So if he did that because of bad intentions, because he hates black people, he's trying to make fun of black people, then that's racist. If he's just doing so because he's a fool, that he's just being a fool, right? Now, yeah. I think right now, it's not wise to wear a blackface. It's foolish because of the climate, but it's not inherently racist. That's, that's what I said in an article to defend him. The problem is, of course, we also know that supporting freedom is not racist, but yet he is so frankly evil and hypocr hypocritical that he would defend himself um, when people were calling him a white supremacist, but then people who are clearly not white supremacists, so, so, uh, white supremacists, like some of my friends, white or black or Indian, who are there right now, he would call them uh, uh, racist because, again, critical race theory is is not really about um, hating racism. It's really about using racism as a tool to manipulate people 
into embracing more leftist and socialist or communist ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you don't go along with that uh, that narrative, then you're supporting the current power structure and you're on the outside, which actually kind of ties in nicely with that article you wrote the other day about uh, the new proletariat, speaking about how, like, because we, we should, you know, okay, if the media is, is left-wing largely as far as the legacy media goes, that would mean they historically should favor the working class, right? Those are the people they purport to uh, to feel sorry for and want to support. However, you get a working class movement in this country, truckers, like who's more working class than truckers? They come to Ottawa, they get no love from the media. And in fact, it's yep. the opposite. It's all hate or, well, not all hate, but it's it's certainly yeah. it's certainly there. Even from the NDP. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, well, the NDP Very is a whole other kettle of fish too, right? So why are they not supporting the truckers and how does that relate to critical race theory? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there are two main reasons for that, and they're both very much fueled by critical race theory. The main reason is critical race theorists, like all leftists, hate freedom, right? This is you know, the freedom convoy. The reason why the same group, media, politicians, um, that supported Black Lives Matter and Antifa just this past summer, well, two summers ago, um, the, the reason why they were defending them but are, but are denouncing these guys is because Black Lives Matter Antifa, they want critical race theory or authoritarianism. They don't want freedom. Um, they, will call, they want social justice. Well, social justice is not about freedom. It's not about justice. It's about um, equity. And equity, as I mentioned before, is about discrimination. And you can only discriminate someone if you have more authority, not a good authority, just more authoritarianism to discrimi discriminate against uh, a group. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing, and this, this is much more cunning, is as I said earlier, um, critical race theorists, they don't believe that the class issue, so, so, so traditional Marxists would believe that a working class person like a trucker would be an oppressed minority in, in our culture, which is not true, they're wrong about that. Just because you make less money than somebody else, just because um, you don't own, just because you have someone who, just because you work for an owner doesn't mean that you are, sorry, let me say it differently. Just because you work for an owner of a company doesn't mean that you are oppressed, but that's what essentially Marxism um, suggests for the working class. But the reason why they've switched from that is because as I said earlier, they don't longer believe that the real conflict in society is between the upper class and the lower class. They believe it's between white people versus black people. Therefore, they believe that the truckers have white privilege. In fact, I've been hearing that a lot. They've been claiming that, well, if these guys weren't white, things would be, you know, th that um, if, if they weren't white, uh, if there were black people, they'd be getting arrested already and everything else. I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, two years ago, people were actually committing crimes and no one got arrested. In fact, Trudeau marched alongside them. Trudeau actually took the knee and claim that Canada is white supremacist, which I still say to myself, I don't understand how that works. If you are the prime minister of a country and you're saying that your country, your policies, your system is white supremacist, that's you admitting then that you are a white supremacist, but no one seems to connect all of that. But anyway, um, you know, so critical race theorists believe that the real proletariat, the real oppressed people in our culture is no longer the lower class, but it is the non-white people, which means that the working class now, especially the white working class, are part of the bourgeoisie, meaning they are the oppressors by the, just by nature of being white. So that is a connection, and, and that is why the politicians, that's why even someone like Jagmeet Singh, the um, NDP leader, I, remember he, he, I think it was a week or two ago, he said, and I chuckled when I read it, he said that, the, uh, the convoy guys are trying to overthrow the government. I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, you are a socialist. You are a communist. Your whole ideology is based on the working class overthrowing the government. But again, because he's become a critical race theorist himself, he no longer believes the working class is, 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 is the means to a, a revolution. He now believes it is non-white people. Right, so that is a shift from classical Marxism into a newer um, cultural Marxism, being critical race theory. 
Yeah, yeah. that's quite the swing, eh? I guess here's here's so I agree with all that, but the one that always trips people up, if I remember back to when Black Lives Matter was at its height, uh, back in 2020, and we saw I, I saw lots of people I know like posting the black squares, if you remember that whole thing, and 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 you know putting a pro BLM thing uh, messages on their social media feeds, and you know on the one hand I'd like I, you can be sympathetic to it because people feel like they're trying to do the right thing, but there's certainly as you've explained there is a lot of uh, yeah, social theory behind this that is uh, destructive and, and and not biblical, frankly. But I think the one that trips up a lot of a lot of folks, especially white folks, is this idea of white privilege because they feel like there is some truth to it because there are differences in outcomes, uh, more so certainly in America, but but still, as you pointed out in, in previous interviews, also in Canada, there's is quite the disparity, and you would know this well growing up in uh, in Toronto there. Can you talk to folks about what this idea of white privilege is, how they can understand it, if there's some truth there, how to navigate the truth and separate out the truth from, from the critical race theory? Yeah. Um, that's a great, great question. So as I said before, critical race theories believe that, um, that Canada, America, Western society, but in our context, say Canada, was built by white people, especially white men, for or they would say now, you know, white, cisgender, Christian men, and yeah. all that stuff. Um, um, I would say it was built by white men for white men or white people. So when they say it was built by white people, they really mean white supremacy. When it says for white people, they really mean that if you benefit from white supremacy, if you're benefiting from the systems and the culture, then that's the privilege, right? You have a privilege of benefiting from the systems and uh, culture they believe is they believe is white supremacist. So white privilege really means the people that benefit most from uh, from what they consider white supremacist culture, um, and it would take shape in their mind in terms of economic disparities. In that they would claim that white people, you know, are the wealthiest people in Canada. Um, they would say that white people are. Um, do not receive the same kind of criminal sentences as non-white people. They would claim that white people are the ones that you see on TV, you see in, in movies and shows and things like that. That's basically what they're saying. Well, now the question becomes, you know, as it deals with the convoy, for example, well, what about white people who may not be as wealthy as some white people? Well, they would say, sure, they may not have all the benefits uh, that's why you have the inter intersectional aspects, right? Where they would say that a poor white person is less privileged than a rich white person. But they would say, still, a poor white person has more power than a wealthy black person. Because again, they believe the essential conflict in society is skin color. So that's why even LeBron James can claim that, you know, he's afraid of his life when he goes out. Give me a break, dude. You're like six, eight, you know, I'm a pretty big guy. If, if, if LeBron James came after me, I'm probably going to be afraid. That's how big he is, all right? Um, um, he has security all over him. He lives in a very wealthy suburban area. He's not afraid of his life at all, right? But again, critical race theory suggests that no matter how wealthy you may be, if you are not white, you are always oppressed. Um, um, so yeah, so now in terms of what the real issue is, I know for a fact, I know this because I've... I've I just not even just based on numbers, not even based on, on theology or everything else, on a very practical level, the richest people in Canada are not white. They're not. It's just not true. It's not true. At least in terms of um, general numbers. It's Indian, is Indian, Asian, and West African Canadians, actually. Um, I know this because I grew up in Brampton where, you know, white people are the minority for the mm -hmm. most part. Oh, yeah. Brampton is not a well, it's, it's not a poor area. Um, Brampton is a middle-class, upper middle-class, at least where I lived in Brampton area. And like, you know, the, the, the immigrants, uh, the Indian, um, you know, the Indian, West African, Asian Canadians are, would be amongst the wealthiest as it is in Canada and Brampton. And again, the numbers, the numbers prove this. I mentioned that because that right there blows the whole critical race theory 
um, thinking that white people are the wealthiest in society. Now, the issue is they would claim that the reason why, um, you know, West African Canadians being like Nigerian, Ghanaian Canadians or, or Indian Canadians or uh, Asian Canadians are wealthiest because they would claim, this is actually what they say, this is actually also right, racist. They would say, well, it's because they've been benefiting from the white supremacist culture, um, which makes no sense. But they would say that, well, those people, they simply took advantage. They became, um, they, 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 they embraced white supremacy in order for them to become wealthy. Um, now, with all that being said, black, you know, in, in the context of black Canadians and white Canadians, white Canadians generally are more wealthy um, than black Canadians. Now, the reason, the reason is why? Well, I wrote an article maybe three years ago now addressing this topic. Um, I compared the numbers to Canada, uh, sorry, the numbers in, in uh, America, the UK and Canada when it comes to the disparities between white, white people and, and black people in these three nations. My point is this, these three nations have a very different history concerning slavery, segregation and racism. All three nations have experienced racism against black people for sure throughout the history, but all three nations have various, various degrees of this racism. And yet the numbers between, the, the, the numbers um, comparing white people and black people in these nations are very similar when it comes to wealth, uh, crime, education, um, and basically everything else, very similar. My point is, if we would claim the reason for this is because of the, is because of the legacy of slavery or racism, how can you make that claim when again, you have identical outcomes, but with very different histories? It makes no sense. And then my explanation, which is proven because this is the common denominator between all three nations is fatherlessness, right? I grew up without a dad in the home. Um, I know this personally. Long story short, my father uh, left my mom before I was born. My mom was, my mom was forced to raise me from, a, you know, since I was a kid. It meant that since my father wasn't home, my mom was never home either because she had to work two jobs. When she was then working two jobs, um, I had no one teaching me discipline. Therefore, I became a very violent kid. I was in like 25 fights before I became a Christian at 19. When I say 25 fights, I mean 25 fist fights. I was committing crime. I was as early as five years old engaging in sexual activity. I was, um, I, I didn't graduate from high school. I, I had, I, I, I was almost removed from my home um, um, you know, I was almost placed into children's aid services and everything. And it was, my mom is an incredible mother, but it's very hard to take care of a child when you are the only parent in the home. Um, I mentioned that because that is the norm for a lot of, uh, black people. Here's the issue in, in, um, in America, 75% of black children are raised a, in a household with no father. 75%. The numbers for white people is 25%. That's a 50% gap. That is the real issue there when it comes to disparities. And it is a known fact that children raised without their fathers in the home leads to more crime, more sexual activity, more um, uh, poor education, um, poor discipline, which creates, of course, a lot of the disparities that we already know. In Canada, the numbers are pretty similar as well. And that is the issue when, that no one talks about when it comes to white privilege. So if someone says to me there's white privilege, I will, I, I don't like that term because it's based on critical race theory and I will reject it. But what I will say is this, if there is white privilege, it's because white people generally have more, have the greatest privilege in the world besides of course being uh, Christianity, which would be that if a white person is more privileged than a black person, generally, it's because they have more access to their father, which leads to more privilege and prosperity, of course, um, in the home and in the culture. Wow. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know all those stats, but that is, yeah, it kind of floored me. Not going to lie. Um, yeah, I can see that. I've heard that before that um, having a, a two parent home is, is definitely like a, a father and mother is definitely a huge thing. Although I've also heard, uh, maybe we can just switch into, um, 
maybe briefly because I think we're running out of time a little bit. But um, to your work at CCBR, I've heard that um, the st- the statistics on abortion are also skewed um, heavily towards uh, um, a black black community. black community or or mothers aborting children. So um, I'm not sure entirely how true that is, but you probably know better. Um, how does that? Um, I guess we can tie that back to C- um, uh, critical race theory, but then um, maybe you could speak to uh, what you've been doing at to, at CCBR, what you have been done have done there, and um, how we can be encouraged to continue the fight with abortion, even though we're pretty deep into this freedom fight. Yeah, thank you. No, um, about the fatherlessness issue that plays a significant, that is the main reason why we have a huge disparity in America and Canada with abortion uh, concerning black people or even indigenous people here in the country as well. Um, As I mentioned before, when you have, uh, when fathers are not in the home, the children are more likely to engage in early sexual activity. um, And that's why a lot of people, a lot of black or indigenous um, teens um, or unmarried people have, um, have unexpected pregnancies which leads oftentimes because of our culture approving of abortion or encouraging people to have abortions. That's why many non-white people have abortions at a higher rate than white people. Mm. So that is the consequence of fatherlessness. Um, Critical race theory then also plays a role in that it suggests that that black people or indigenous people should pursue um, abortion because if they don't, the system that's already against them will be even harder if they're parenting uh, without uh, being married. So critical race theory is encouraging people, uh, especially like, again, non-white uh, women to get an abortion because, because already the system is against them. And this is one way that they can have more, more power against the system. That's another um, thing that's racist about it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's, it's extremely racist. Um, but you know, that's the nature of critical race theory and that's racist against black people and white people. Um, in terms of what I've done with CCBR, uh, it's a great organization. Um, I worked, I was with them for um, three years. Um, I, the only reason why I left is because I'm, I'm moving to Ohio um, to get married and it was, it was difficult. Uh, I love my time at CCBR, saving babies, um, having so many testimonies of lives being changed and babies being saved. Um, you know, CCBR, I, I guess I'm biased, but is the greatest pro-life organization in Canada and they need more support. So if, any, if anyone is listening to this and, they, and they're considering being involved in the pro-life movement, please, I know right now they're taking applications for the summer internship. That's how I got involved. Uh, it changed my life. Um, so please, if you're, if you're considering that, please do so. Uh, just go on their website and canon.ca and apply. Um, also, just pray and support them. Support, send if you can. You know, support them by prayer or through uh, donations or even volunteering as well. Um, you know, I think what's happening right now in the country. You know, the Freedom Convoy is doing so great. But to be honest with you, a big part of me is also thinking, if what if Christians and and conservatives cared as much about um, you know, life as much as we're caring about liberty now, um, you know, because frankly, it's not, it's not a surprise that a nation where babies don't have a right to live would then say that no one has the right to liberty. Um, if you don't have a right to live, then you don't have right to anything, including liberty. So if we care about freedom, well, let's care about the most fundamental um, freedom, which is the freedom um, to, to life. Yeah, well, yeah. Sure, that doesn't get you motivated. There you go. Any other thoughts you wanna you wanna end off with? I maybe just want, I guess one last question I have is is um, during your time in the pro life movement, have you seen a change? And do you see, uh, yeah, a promising future in terms of, of change in this country? Or what do you think? Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the changes that I noticed immediately was one for one in, in me that I joined the pro life movement in part because. By standing against critical race theory, I became convicted that here are people who are fighting passionately for injustice, um, as in they're promoting injustice, and I'm writing against them. What am I doing to passionately fight for justice? And I think a lot of people, because so many young people now are are just social justice warriors and are 
uh, fighting, you know, fighting against God's um, God's law in many in many of these things. It's more it's motivating people to become more involved in real justice issues, including abortion or fighting against abortion. So I've seen so many people just you know seeing what Black Lives Matter has been able to do in that they're very effective. Black Lives Matter, for all the reasons why we dislike them and as we should, they are very effective. And I think a lot of young people are saying, huh, why can't I, can't, why can't I just be effective in something that would glorify God? Um, the other thing, of course, is when I joined the pro-life movement, I, I joined in part because a friend of mine many years ago asked me, what would I say to a girl considering an abortion? And I, the at the time, I wasn't a Christian. I just said, I don't know, and that was it. I thought, I didn't know the, what we know, the consequence of my non-answer because about a, a week later, she went to an abortion clinic and she killed her baby. Um, I didn't know that she was pregnant and that had a very big impact on me. So when I joined CCBR, the summer internship, I made a goal that I wanted to change at least 30 minds in abortion that summer. Uh, it was a very ambitious, um, you know, um, ambitious goal. I was thinking to myself, you know, I failed to protect one baby. I want to try and protect as many babies as possible. And I thought 30 would be good. Well, within a couple of weeks, I had already changed over 30 people's minds in abortion. Um, and that summer alone, I, I, I wrote it down, not because I have a huge ego. I have an ego, but um, not just because of that. Um, I, I, I did so because I wanted, you know, I, I still struggle with just knowing how I failed my friends, my friend and her baby, that I wanted to just um, count my blessings from God in that way. And by the end of the summer, it was 73 minds change in abortion. Um, and wow. I, I am not a skilled person whatsoever. CCBR is just that effective. Uh, they trained me well. I learned apologetics, man. I thought I knew apologetics. I knew nothing until I went to their, um, their internship and I learned so much more. Um, so we had Jonathan on your podcast a while ago. He's a brilliant man. I will never say that to his face, but <laughs> he's a brilliant man. Um, and I learned a lot from him and the other, other guys at CCBR. So now that I'm here in Ohio, I'm, I'm, I'm planning to continue the work. And I do plan to split my time now from Canada and the US. I'm never gonna be here full time. I, like I said, my heart is in Canada. It always will be. And I plan, because of, the, you know, because of my job, writing full time, I can write from anywhere and I'm hoping that I can, I can split, I can be in Canada at least three, four or five months a year. Um, and I plan in summertime to still do pro-life work with uh, CCBR. So um, yeah, that's what I, that's my thoughts on that. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Don't stop writing about Canada because uh, we need voices like yours, reform voices, right? Like it's, yeah, it's easy to find news and, and uh, you know, people to follow but you know having reformed christian voices is uh definitely valuable and uh yeah so everyone can go uh to your your website i guess i don't know if you call it a blog anymore but uh um slow to write.com i think it is um yeah go check out yeah, Samuel. Blog, website that's okay with me i'm a blogger so there you go blogger yeah <laughs> and uh you said so you're writing full-time that's that's your gig if is there a spot where people can go uh donate and support if they'd like to yeah, if people want to, they can um, go to my blog. They can support me on Patreon. They can support me through PayPal as well, too. Um, it's all just slow to write. So yep. they search for, uh, I mean, I, I have a link to my Patreon on my website and also have an article on my website about how they can support me. So uh, people can support me there. Awesome. Perfect. Beautiful. Well, very much appreciated. You know, appreciate having you on, uh, your willingness to come on even from way down there. You know, maybe five hours away or something. <laughs> yeah, not that far. But yeah, uh, good so stuff, welcome. man. We appreciate it. Uh, keep up the great work. And uh, yeah, you're welcome back every anytime, man. Yeah, I would love to. Just let me know whenever you guys want me back. Sounds yeah. good. Thanks so much. All right. Keep having real talk, folks. Catch you next time. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback, and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. If you want to find us online or social media, we've got a lot of great content there. 
Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holtfluer, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamiga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.